0: This is Jelko Iwanek. You're listening to the Inside Oz Podcast,
1: and I must be obeyed or my thunderbolts will strike.
0: Five hours to dawn and I gotta be in a goddamn glass box with the king's stick. And you know, you know, you're so fucking clean and righteous, man. He said, I, I, I got demons clawing up my ass. The streets I was selling dope, as bad as any of those homeboys. Fucking kill the cop.
2: Fuck you, governor. And what is your problem, man?
0: I'm fucking ass, man. I wish I could, man. I got potatoes to peel. Yeah, <laughs> you should give me her phone number and her address. Wait, Bet you wouldn't mind that. Yeah,
1: thanks for the stimulating conversation, guys. You guys like goats. You know, you got to bring
3: everything down to the level of a goat. Titties, humping.
0: Sex, Sex offender. Shit all over, man. No, no. I am black, I am a Muslim, and I am a
2: man, and sometimes those I won't is about the whole whoring judicial system.
3: Hello everybody, and welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review podcast. As per usual, I'm your host Neil Thompson. We're past the halfway point of Series 2, and today we're going to be looking back at Episode 5, Family Business. Just before we get going with that, just want to say thank you to everybody who has sent in questions or comments to the show. I do read them all, but sometimes just don't get the chance to reply to them. But I just wanted to say thank you, and if you have any questions or comments, send them on over to InsideOrzPodcast at gmail.com, or hit me up on social media on Instagram and Twitter using the handle at insideozpodcast. So, episode 5, Family Business, spelt with a Z, or with a Z if you're in the US, because that was the style at the time. Written by Tom Fontana, and with a telly player by Tom Fontana and Bradford Winters, this episode was directed by guest director and Academy Award winner Kathy Bates. Born June 28, 1948 in Memphis, Tennessee, Bates graduated from White Station High School in Memphis in 1965, and in 1969 graduated from Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, where she majored in theatre and was a member of the Alpha Delta Pi Sorority, before moving to New York City in 1970 to pursue her acting career. Juggling film, TV and theatre work concurrently, but its first credited film role came in 1971's Taking Off, and her first TV role in 1977's Vanities. Theatre roles on Broadway at this time included 5th of July, the first production of Crimes of the Heart in 1979, come back to the five-and-dime Jimmy Jimmy where she appeared alongside Karen Black and Cher, all of whom would also appear in the play's 1982 film adaptation. In 1983, Bates appeared in Night Mother, a play written by Marsha Norman and which ran for over a year and earned Bates a Tony Award nomination. Off-Broadway, Bates appeared in 1987's Frankie and Johnny in The Claire de Lune, written by Terence McNally, specifically with Bates in mind for her role. The play ran for over 500 performances and Bates won Best Actress at the Obie Awards the following year. Moving back into TV, Bates appeared in All My Children on ABC from 1983 to 1984, playing the role of prison in Belle Burdell, and later played the part of Evelyn Maddox in One Life to Live, which also aired on ABC. 1990 became somewhat of a breakout year for Bates in film, in which she appeared in White Palace alongside Susan Sarandon and James Spader, and Warren Beatty's adaptation of Dick Tracy, before starring in arguably her most famous role in Misery, the movie adaptation of Stephen King's novel playing the part of Annie Wilkes, the unhinged megafan of an author who she nurses back to hell following a car crash. The film was a critical success, grossing over $61 million in the US, and earned Bates her first Academy Award nomination, which she won in the Best Actress category, as well as winning the Golden Globe Award. In 2003, the character of Annie Wilkes was listed at number 17 on the American Film Institute's 100 Years 100 list of villains. In 1991, Bates appeared in the movie Fried Green Tomatoes, for which she received nominations for Best Supporting Actress at the Golden Globes and at the BAFTA Awards, but missed out on an Oscar nomination, before also appearing in 1995's Dolores Claiborne, before appearing as Molly Brown in James Cameron's 1997 epic Titanic, a film which did pretty well, shall we say. Sweeping award shows in 1998, including winning 11 Academy Awards, tying the record set by 1959's Ben-Hur, Titanic grossed close to $2.2 billion worldwide, becoming the highest-grossing film of all time, a feat which it held for 12 years, losing the crown in 2009 to Avatar, also directed by James Cameron. At the time of recording, Titanic is still the third-highest-grossing film of all time, recently losing the second-place spot to Avengers Endgame. In 1998, Bates received her second Academy Award nomination, this time for the Best Supporting Actress category for her appearance in Primary Colours as Libby Holden. Primary Colours also featured at the 1999 version of the Golden Globes, where Bates was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and she also won the Best Supporting Actress award at the BAFTA Awards and the Screen Actors Guild Awards ceremonies. Prior to this episode of Oz, Bates had directed episodes of Great Performances in 1995, Homicide Life on the Street in 1996, and NYPD Blue in 1997. So, Kathy Bates becomes the latest in this increasing line of guest directors on the show, and it's a real testament to where Oz was standing at the time, helped by having respected producers in Tom Fontana and Barry Levinson, that they were able to get names such as Kathy Bates and Bob Balaban on board to direct episodes as well as guest stars making appearances. And we'll see more and more of that as we go through the show. Series 3 in particular has episodes directed by some big names, holding an 8.3 on IMDb and originally airing on August 10, 1998. A day on which His Royal Highness al mutadi Bilal was proclaimed the Crown Prince of Brunei. Yugoslavia beat Russia 64-62 in the finals of the World Basketball Championships in Greece. And in the Caribbean, residents of Nevis voted on whether or not to break away from the dual island nationality it shared with St. Kitts. voted in favour, but this fell short of the 67% required for the resolution to pass. A measure that the UK government should have put in place during the 2016 EU referendum, but then again, that would have been common sense. And with that Brexit talk out of the way, it's over to Augustus, whose pod has had a lovely old-time circus makeover. Family!
0: Our families determine who we are, determine what we're not. All of our relationships with everybody we ever meet for the rest of our lives is based on the way we relate to the members of our family. No wonder the world's so fucked up.
3: <laughs> Curtain up, and we see Saeed in the library with his law books when he is approached by Schellinger. He tells Saeed that he's read his book about the riot, but is told that no refunds are offered. Schellinger laughs it off, saying that he liked the book, but Saeed tells him to cut to the chase. Schillinger says that they are looking for the same thing, and that from reading the book he sees that Saeed is a man that wants to fuck the system and use the law against itself. He tells Saeed about his conspiracy to commit murder charge, and that he has fired his lawyer and is now looking for Saeed to represent him. Saeed chuckles away to himself, but Schillinger tells him that he is serious, and pitches that if a man like Saeed believes that Schillinger is innocent, then a jury might think so too and he then raises the point about Saeed defending a man with Schillinger's beliefs, and that he will be able to stick it to Leo and McManus and stun the outside world in the process, all while showing himself to be a man who truly strives for justice, and who doesn't let race or prejudice get in the way. He prompts Saeed for an answer, but Saeed takes a moment before telling him that he'll think about it, and he gets up to leave and leaves Schillinger sitting there smiling. What Schillinger has done here, and I know that I've previously referred to him as a knuckle-dragging shit for brains, but this is a masterstroke on his part. Whereas before, when he was planning with Diane to kill Beecher, we could see how desperate he was, and as a result ended up rushing into a poorly executed plan that has landed him in a position of securing an extension to his sentence. However, this is a well-thought-out, calculated pitch to Saeed, and the fact that he is able to get Saeed to even consider the offer is a testament to Schillinger, but it also says a lot about Saeed too. I highly doubt that he'll believe anything that Schillinger tells him when he pleads his innocence, but he is obviously aware, and ultimately buys into Schillinger's point about how defending Schillinger will reflect on him, and much like when he defended Augustus, he will take any opportunity to boost his own ego under the pretense of helping others. We move over to M-City, where Kenny is having a rummage through Poet's Footlocker and finds a notepad of poetry. Poet enters the pod and asks Kenny what he thinks he's doing, as Kenny starts to rip pages from the notepad. Poet grabs Kenny and presses him up against the wall, but guards and Armstrong are in quickly to break it up and take both men to McManus' office. McManus reads Kenny the riot act, mentioning that this is his third incident in as many weeks, and as a result breaks off their deal and tells Kenny that he's off back to the kitchen to mop floors, Kenny saying, big fucking deal, pretending not to give a shit. His mood quickly changes, however, once McManus tells him that he's not going to be allowed to attend the upcoming graduation ceremony. Kenny tells McManus that he's got his mum and his girlfriend coming, but McManus tells him, too bad, and to call them and cancel. We get a switcheroo between Kenny and Poet, and McManus seems to be a bit more forgiving with Poet, which is fine to a degree, as it was Kenny that instigated this. He tells Poet that he needs to stay out of trouble because he's been published, and a lot of people, including a number of famous writers, have rallied to get a case review for Poet, and that as they're due before the parole board soon, something like this could mess things up completely for Poet. Sister Peters also mentioned to McManus that Poet has not been attending drug counselling, and he says that he's going to let that slide as well, because he feels that Poet gives Oz a good name, and that if he does anything to the contrary, there will be no second chance. Obviously, McManus is being completely sincere here, and proving himself to be nothing but a good guy all round it definitely has nothing to do with what Saeed alluded to previously about how the good publicity for his education programme shines McManus in a positive light and paints him as a hero and a saviour. And you'd be a cynic to think anything otherwise. And with that, we're then off to the parole board and the chairman, is that what they're called? Let's go with that. He calls out Poet's name Augustus Hill style. Poet is sat at the hearing with McManus, which seems an interesting choice rather than having some sort of legal representative there. That's assuming that it was his idea, it could have easily been McManus' decision to sit in. Either way, having McManus fight his corner projects a good image for Poet to the parole board. The chairman explains the procedure of the hearing, and explains that afterwards he will make a recommendation to the parole commissioner, and asks if Poet has any questions. Poet looks across to McManus, perhaps looking for some sort of cue with how to respond, and he appears to be very humble in this environment. He's even wearing his normal clothes, and there's a moment where McManus even motions to him to take off his hat, but this puts across Poet the person for who he is in a very what-you-see-is-what-you-get sort of way. Had he been made to put on a suit and tie, perhaps the parole board might have thought that Poet could have just been putting on an act and they're not seeing the real person. Cut to the classroom where the students are about to start a class, but McManus comes in before they start and says that he has some good news, and he tells the class that Poet has been granted his parole. The class sounds surprised, and even Poet sat there with a look of shock on his face. He's wearing the same clothes that he had on at the hearing, so presumably this is meant to be the same day, or he is getting as many days out of those clothes as he can before he washes them. This is an example of the show playing fast and loose with real-world timelines a little to help keep the story moving along. And that's not a criticism, it's just that, due to how long these things actually take in a real-world environment, it would disrupt the flow of the show. Depending on the particulars of an inmate's sentence and other factors that we've discussed before that can vary from state to state, a parole hearing generally takes between two and six months to complete. Once a hearing has been concluded, it will usually be a few days until an inmate finds out the result of their hearing. It's also rare that an inmate would be granted parole at their first hearing, as the parole commission rely on testimony from victims, from witnesses, and law enforcement officers before reaching a conclusion. Like I say, that isn't a criticism of the show. In fact, you see it quite often on other shows too, where the sequence will be shortened so as to not affect the flow of the show and keep the narrative moving along. In this scenario, perhaps McManus has done more than he usually would to help get Poet's release granted at the first attempt, as it would put a positive focus on the education programme. McManus tells Poet that it's an immediate release, so once the graduation ceremony has taken place, he'll be on his merry way. Kashin also tells the class that Poet has been made the class valedictorian, Someone asked what that means, and I'm glad they did, because I'd never heard of it either. The Valedictorian is usually the person with the highest grades in the class, and they're chosen to give a speech on behalf of the class at that year's graduation ceremony. Mamana shakes Poet's hand, and he tells the class that he has shared the news with them as a means of encouraging the rest of them, and that if they work hard, they will be rewarded similar to how Poet is. He gives a little, yeah, fist pump before he goes. It makes him look a right geek cut to Leo's office, where Governor Devlin is sat going over some paperwork and saying, it'll be good for McManus, he needs a little education himself in reality. And right on cue, McManus enters the office, and Devlin gives him a sarcastic greeting. McManus doesn't seem too thrilled to see Devlin, and he asks Leo if this is some sort of sneak attack. Leo tells him to take a seat, but McManus refuses, and asks what brought Devlin down from Mount Olympus. Another great callback to a previous episode. Devlin gives him the clue of G, E, and D, and Leo explains that the state has decided to remove the education program from the next year's budget. The way that Leo tells McManus, and the look on his face, he doesn't seem to be surprised at all, and he knew exactly how McManus was going to react once he heard the news. He's seen this coming a mile off. McManus tells Devlin that the program is working, and as he starts to explain about how with time it will improve even more, he is interrupted by Devlin, who says that they don't have time and they need more COs something that the budget can't handle unless cuts are made. McManus tries to make the case that they won't need so many CEOs if they had less inmates, which is exactly what the education programme is helping with, and they both end up shouting over each other, and at one point they come off like a pair of school kids. Devlin says that he will be holding a press conference on the 15th, in which he will announce the budget, and that until then, the information is not to leave the office. McManus points out that the 15th is three days after the students graduate, Devlin saying that he planned it that way so as to not affect the graduation ceremony, which is such a dickish move on his part. Well done, everyone on graduating. Oh, by the way, your funding's been cut. Mamanus gets it out of Devlin that he's coming to the ceremony, which he says, unfortunately, yes, and calls it the wages of spin. Slight question about the timeline here too, because if you read Augustus Hill's journal in the Oz Behind These Walls book, which is fantastic by the way, a great companion piece to the show, Augustus writes that the graduation ceremony takes place on the 15th, which would mean that Devlin would have actually delivered his press conference the same day. This is the first time in a while that we've seen Devlin, and at this point in time he's in somewhat of a rebuilding process following the riot. Obviously, we're months removed since that happened, but the effects are still being felt, and while ultimately he seems to have been cleared of any wrongdoing, he's looking to re-establish himself, and in the process turn Oz into a stronger fortress. He clearly doesn't give a shit about the education programme, even more so because it's a project spearheaded by McManus. All of his attention is on presenting the image of the prison being under control, which he sees as the key factor when it comes to his image with voters. Cut to the hallway where McManus is explaining to a reporter from the local media about what he wants from the graduation ceremony, saying that he doesn't want anything flashy as it will just distract the inmates, and stops short of asking for a condensed Pink Floyd concert for £500. The reporter tells him that it will just be him and a cameraman, and that local news isn't Hollywood. McManus asks how long the story will be on air, and depending on what else is happening that day, is told it could be anything between 45 seconds and 3 minutes. McManus says that he wants the three minutes, because the inmates have worked hard and deserve the recognition, and that the viewers need to know that something good is coming out of ours. I honestly don't know which side of the fence I'm sitting on with McManus on all of this. Part of me is thinking that all he wants is what's best for the inmates, and is wanting to help them in any way that he can, and is really trying to make a difference. On the flip side of that, I can totally see how people like Saeed think that Manus is just doing this to boost his own ego. While some characters are very one-dimensional and it's clear how we should feel about them, this shades-of-gray approach to the writing of McManus is very well done and makes me want to see how his character will continue to develop. And with that, we cut to the graduation ceremony where McManus is having his moment on the microphone.
4: Governor Devlin, Warden Glynn, graduates, families, friends, it is with great pride that I stand before you now to mark not only the academic achievement of the individuals we are here to honor, but also the communal victory to which every person in this room has contributed. These students have taught me that the GED diploma is only part of a much larger goal, to change one's life and never look back. So it is with great sorrow that I tell you This could be the last year of education at Oswald. In the new budget that will soon be considered by our legislature, the equivalency program will be terminated. This tragic decision won't affect today's graduates, but their dedication and hard work have left a legacy which inevitably will disappear. In the immortal words of Chuck D. Don't believe the hype.
3: So McManus going into business for himself and dropping the bomb at the education programme is being dropped from the budget, and we get a great shot of Devlin squirming in his chair. I also really like the shot of all the students in their gowns and mortarboards. You see Mac in the lineup, and he's still wearing his nose bandage. They should have changed that to a black bandage for this. It would have looked like Hitler's moustache, which would have totally been in line with his character. It's a missed opportunity if ever there was one. McManus also shows himself to be a fan of old-school hip-hop, quoting Chuck D from Public Enemy. Like I've said before, I'm a metal guy deep down, but Public Enemy are one of the few hip-hop acts that I know at least something about, partly down to Chuck D featuring on Anthrax's cover of Bring the Noise and Henry Rollins' West Memphis Three Benefit album. As we go on, we'll see a number of other hip-hop influences on the show, which mostly went over my head when I first watched the show. The line that he quotes there as well, Don't Believe the Hype, taken from the song of the same name, and off Public Enemy's, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back which at the time of broadcast would have been celebrating its 10th anniversary, and is considered one of the most influential albums of all time, certainly in the hip-hop genre. Another connection between Public Enemy and Oz, albeit a very loose one, Public Enemy's sixth album, He Got Game, doubled up as the soundtrack to the 1998 film of the same name, which featured two members of the Oz cast, those being Roger Gwenver Smith, who played Husseini Mershah in Series 1, and Rick Fox, who we know as Jackson Vahue, who seems to have disappeared from the show as he didn't return to M-City with the rest of the inmates. Manas then hands things over to Poet, who delivers his valedictorian speech.
2: Too many prisons and not enough schools. Too many weapons and not enough tools. Not enough teachers, too many fools. But me? I'm from where fights is born. I'm from where nights is dawned. I'm from the ingredients spit from the sun. I've formed an allegiance with the number one, the letter A, the beginning of the day, The way, the wisdom, the wish, the will, the river, the tree, the try, the trek, the rub of the neck, the ball of the foot, the back of the thigh, the glimmer of the eye peered at what it's intrigued by, tried by what it's believed by. I have taken on the likeness of love, the harbor of hate, the hell of here, and the wonder of the whereafter. I've discerned the disaster and drank Don Perion and Armageddon. I have drank the sacred ambrosia housed in the chalice of the rebellious cherubim, disguised as quarter juices. I have died toothless and been reborn 144,000 times. I've got 144,000 rhymes for every brain cell but I waste away in a cell. Thank you.
3: I really like the speech that Poet gives there, and if, like me, you're a wrestling fan, that speech sounds so similar to Dusty Rhodes' famous pork and beans promo. If you've never heard it, Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, December 3rd, 1985. Go and check it out, and then listen to Poet's speech. I'm not saying they're the same, but there's definitely an influence there. I also really like Poet getting down from the stage and giving his mum a hug, that was really sweet. Kashin introduces the rest of the class to get their diplomas, as we see Kenny mopping the floor, and you can tell that he wishes he was up there with the rest of the guys. Cut to the men's room where Devlin is at the urinal when McManus comes in and takes his place, disobeying the first law of the urinal that you leave as much space as possible between you and the other person. He asks Devlin why he didn't stick around for the cake and coffee, but Devlin tears into him saying that McManus thinks that he's so clever and how he embarrassed him. McManus telling him that that was pretty much the idea. Devlin asks McManus if he thinks that he is vulnerable due to Devlin's wife walking out and the corruption charges, which were mentioned in the last series, and he also mentions about her dropping the polls following the riot, and that perhaps McManus is thinking that Devlin can't take any more heat. McManus says that he is a simple man with a simple plan, but Devlin tells him that he is the opposite, and that a year ago people thought he would be impeached, but that they, much like McManus, underestimate him and the voters, who he says he has a love-hate relationship with. He admits that the voters probably think that Devlin is a bully and that he has cheated on his wife, and all the while he's doing this stood in front of a mirror combing his hair, which is a hilarious visual because he has such a receding hairline and his hair is so thin, but it just shows that little bit of delusion on Devlin's part. He then mentions that crime and taxes are down, employment and median income is up, and that the Knights made the playoffs couldn't find any record of any New York or New Jersey-based teams called the Knights from 1998, other than the New York Knights Rugby League team, who were founded the previous year. And seeing as about six people in the US watch Rugby League, I doubt it was them that he was referring to. The only other teams I could find were the New York Knights who played in the Arena Football League and the New York-New Jersey Knights from the World League of American Football. But both of those teams had long since folded, so the Knights could easily just be a fictional team from an ambiguous sport. What Devlin says about employment is also true. According to the US Bureau of Labor Statistics, in 1998, the unemployment rate in the US as a whole stood at 4.4%, down from 4.7% the previous year, and down from 7.4% in 1992, following Bill Clinton becoming president. Devlin also mentions that the state has the highest literacy rate in the country, and asks if McManus thinks that people care about whether or not some drugged-out homeboy gets a diploma knowing that their own children are going to Yale. Harsh words, but he's probably correct. Public perception when it comes to prison, especially here in the UK, does seem to be lock them up and throw away the key most of the time. He leaves the men's room telling McManus to enjoy his coffee and cake, as Augustus narrates about children's relationships with their parents to close the scene. Fade up on Poet in his pod and Kenny has come to have a talk with him, seemingly wanting to make amends as Poet is set to be released that day. Kenny tells him that he heard his poem at the graduation and that he liked it, and he also says that despite giving Poet a lot of shit for writing, he admits that he thinks Poet is really good, which Poet appreciates and tells Kenny that it was fucked up that he wasn't allowed to go to the graduation. Kenny says that he didn't have the heart to tell his mum that he wasn't allowed to graduate, and that she was so proud of him for learning to read, and he asks Poet if he would do him a favour and help Kenny write a letter to his mum, and he offers Poet some drugs if he agrees to help, which Poet accepts. Cut to later in the day and we see Poet reading a book as Saeed approaches him. He asks Poet if he is packed and ready to leave, but Poet tells him that he doesn't want to take anything from Oz with him. He says that it's fucked up that he's leaving and everybody else just stays there, and he compares that to waking up from a dream. Said cracks open his book of soundbites saying that hope is a waking dream, only this time he's quoting ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, so at least this quote has some weight behind it. The more obvious comparison to waking up from a dream, and spoiler alert for an 80-year-old movie here, would be from the end of The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy wakes up back in Kansas. Poet jokes that Aristotle wouldn't know about Hope as he never served no time in Oz, which actually gets a rare laugh out of Saeed, before McManus comes over and tells Poet that it's time to go. McManus is wearing a similar outfit to what he had on at the graduation. Usually when we see him, he's in some sort of long-sleeved t-shirt or jumper. But like with the graduation, which he knew was getting reported on, and with the possibility of cameras being around due to the outside attention that has followed Poet's case, he's pulled out the suit and tie for this. Poet shakes Saeed's hand and says that he wants to thank him, and he also thanks McManus as he and Saeed exchange a glance. Saeed tells Poet Salaam Alaikum, as Poet and McManus leave M-City to close out Act 1. I want to
2: thank you. Both. Salaam Alaikum.
3: Act 2 gets underway with a guard flirting with Shirley Bellinger, telling her that she's the prettiest girl on Death Row, which, considering that she's the only woman on Death Row, isn't much of an achievement. We've had a few little mentions and appearances of Shirley on the show so far, but this is the first real scene that she has had since coming to Oz. So Shirley is in Oz for murder in the first degree, which we saw in a crime flashback at the end of the previous episode, where she drove her car into the lake with her daughter inside before Shirley escaped and left her daughter to drown in the car. As with Richard Lytalian, Shirley's sentenced to death after being convicted following the reinstatement of the death penalty. Shirley's crime flashback is also the only one in the entire run of the show that doesn't come with Augustus narrating a name, crime and sentence. Also, much like Richard Lytalian, this character is based on a real-life convict. While Lytalian was heavily influenced by the crimes of Ted Bundy, Shirley Bellinger is based on the case of Susan Smith in South Carolina, who on October 25th, 1994, filed a police report claiming she was the victim of a carjacking by a black male who stole her car with her two sons still inside. Following days of dramatic pleas on TV and following an investigation as well as a nationwide search, Smith confessed on November 9th that she had in fact let her car roll into John D. Long Lake in Union County, South Carolina, in which both of her sons drowned. While it was reported that Smith's motivations for the killings were to start a relationship with a wealthy man from the local area, Smith has stated that there was no motive, nor did she plan the murders in advance, as well as claiming that she was not of sound mind. At her trial, Smith's defence psychiatrist diagnosed her as having dependent personality disorder, as well as depression. Smith was convicted on July 22, 1995 for the murders of her two sons, three-year-old Michael Daniel Smith and Alexander Tyler Smith, aged 14 months. Smith was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 30 years. There are a couple of other similarities between Bellinger and Smith, which I will go into in more detail in a future episode. Shirley Bellinger is played by Catherine Irby. Born July 5th, 1965 in Newton, Massachusetts, Catherine studied at New York University, during which time she was cast and appeared in all 12 episodes of the short-lived ABC sitcom Chicken Soup, playing the part of Patricia Reese, She later became a member of the Steppenwolf Theatre Company, where she first met Terry Kinney. More on that in a moment. During her time with Steppenwolf, Irby appeared in a number of productions, including the Terry Kinney-directed productions of A Streetcar Named Desire and The Grapes of Wrath, which won the 1990 Tony Award for Best Play. The following year, Irby would be herself nominated for a Tony Award for her role as Mary in 1991's The Speed of Darkness, which ran at the Belasco Theatre in Midtown Manhattan. In the early 90s, Irby appeared in the films What About Bob and Rich in Love, and in 1993, Irby and Terry Kinney married, and I'll talk more about Terry Kinney and marriages in a little while. After appearing in 1994's D2 The Mighty Ducks and Kiss of Death in 1995, Irby gave birth to her and Terry Kinney's first child, a daughter named Mead. In 1997, Irby appeared in Dream with the Fishes, and alongside her husband in the TV movie George Wallace, as well as 1998's Love from Ground Zero, before appearing as Shirley Bellinger here on Oz. Now, I can't remember if husband and wife Terry and Catherine have any scenes together on Oz. I don't think they do, as I wouldn't have thought that McManus would come by Death Row very often, unless it involves someone from M-City. Someone that she does have a scene with, though, is Father Ray. She thanks him for coming down, but he says that it's fine and that if she hadn't have asked, he would have come down anyway. They have a conversation where Shirley says she wasn't much for any kind of religion, but says that she was baptised Lutheran, a hardcore branch of Christianity based on the teachings of German professor and priest Martin Luther from the 16th century. Shirley also mentions that she went to Quaker school, more commonly known as a friend's school, which is an institution that teaches the belief that every child has unique gifts and talents, and these are run by the Religious Society of Friends. She reveals that she's been married at least twice, her first husband being Jewish, and that husband number two was an atheist. Ray asks her if she is also an atheist, but Shirley says that she isn't sure, and that she's been having all sorts of feelings since the quote-unquote accident. Ray asks her, accident? To which Shirley mentions about her daughter dying, and then asks Ray to save her. Ray asks if she just means to be saved from the lethal injection, but Shirley says that she wants to be saved from hell, and she mentions about Ray's collar looking stiff. And the scene is played out like a sexual power play, which Ray clearly feels uncomfortable with. She rubs her hand over his chest and moves it down towards his penis. We don't actually see if she grabs him down there, but Ray demands that she stops and asks for an officer to come and open the cell door. Shirley apologises and says that she is fucked up, as Ray comes back over to sit down next to her and with the worst case of crocodile tears I've ever seen, she settles into a hug from Ray, which he is going to give her whether he wants to or not. Much like the scene he had with Lytalian, Ray seems very uncomfortable when the issue of sex is raised, pardon the expression, which could be perhaps due to his strong Catholic beliefs, or perhaps there is something a bit more sinister lurking underneath. If he was young when he joined the priesthood, and with the history of abuse within the Catholic Church, it is entirely possible that Ray could have been abused at some point, and he's still dealing with those issues in his adult life. Obviously, that's not to say that everybody involved in the Catholic Church is an abuser or has been abused. All I'm saying is there are a lot of cases of abuse that have been reported, and perhaps more worryingly, there are probably many more that haven't. By the way, check out the film Spotlight. That focuses on the true story of the Boston Globe uncovering an abuse scandal within the Catholic Church. It's grim as fuck, but it's a fantastic movie with a great cast. Augustus narrates about how in Oz they don't get to see their real family very often, and that sometimes what they do inside, they do for their families. And I'm liking the different things they're doing with Augustus' segments when he's in his glass box. In Series 1, it was pretty much just him in the box in M-City as it would rotate, but as we've come into Series 2, we've seen him dressed as an astronaut, earlier on he was a circus MC, and we've got a child's cot with toys going on here. It just adds that bit of variety to whenever we see him. Schillinger is playing pool in Genpop as McManus comes to talk to him. He asks McManus what brought him down to the Low Rent District, but McManus tells him that even though Schillinger is no longer in M-City, that doesn't mean that he isn't bothered about what's going on with him. Schillinger sees right through that and says that he had to listen to McManus' sanctimonious crap when he was in M-City, but he doesn't have to now and tells him bye-bye. McManus comes clean and asks Schillinger about his accusation about Diane shooting Scott Ross. Schillinger says that he saw Diane kill Scott and that it isn't an accusation. McManus tells Schillinger that he wants all the details, but Schillinger is reluctant saying that all he'll do is bury the truth because the staff just look out for one another. McManus tells him not this time, and you can see why Schillinger wouldn't be willing to cooperate. While it was very much of his own doing, in his eyes he was set up by Diane when they hatched the plot to kill Beecher. So why McManus thinks Schillinger would be willing to help on this occasion shows some naivety on his part, which is something that we see quite often. McManus is a man who more often than not has lofty ideals and wants to do the right thing, but naivety can get the better of him sometimes, and sometimes he misplaces his trust. And it makes you wonder if Oz, or any other prison for that matter, is really the best place for McManus to be. Tim McManus is played by theatre veteran Terry Kinney. Born January 29, 1954 in Lincoln, Illinois, his mother was a telephone operator, and his father a supervisor for a tractor company. Kinney attended Illinois State University, where he became friends with fellow actor Jeff Perry. There attended a performance of Grease starring Gary Sinise, who knew Jeff previously, and the trio would become friends, and later formed the Steppenwolf Theatre Company in 1974, which had its humble beginnings in a small space of Highland Park's immaculate Conception Church. Named after the Herman Heese novel of the same name and not the Canadian-American rock band that gave us Born to be Wild, the theatre has gained national recognition and is now located on North Halstead Street in the Lincoln Park area of Chicago. Notable alumni include John Malkovich, John Mahoney, Joan Allen and Laurie Metcalf. As part of Steppenwolf, Kinney started directing theatre in 1976 with a production of the Harold Pinter play The Lover. Other directorial works of Kinney's include productions of John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, Streamers, A Clockwork Orange, and as mentioned earlier, A Streetcar Named Desire. At the height of the theatre's fame, Kinney also served as one of its artistic directors, and has received a number of award nominations, as well as helping to transfer an adaptation of The Grapes of Wrath to the Broadway stage. Between 1979 and 1991, Kinney was also nominated for a Joseph Jefferson Award, more commonly known simply as the Jeff Awards, on seven separate occasions, his sole win coming in 1983 for directing the play and A Nightingale Sang at the Steppenwolf Theatre. In 1984, Kinney married fellow actress Elizabeth Perkins, and in 1985 made his first film appearance, playing Bill the Photographer, in Seven Minutes in Heaven. Kinney's first recurring TV role came in ABC's 30-something, in which he appeared in seven episodes between 1987 and 1989. Following his divorce from Elizabeth Perkins in 1988, Kinney continued to land small film roles, such as playing Mark in Miles From Home, as well as TV roles in Kojak and an appearance in Law & Order. Following appearances in Last of the Mohicans in 1992 and The Firm in 1993, the same year in which he married his second wife and Oz co-star Catherine Irby, which I mentioned earlier, Kinney's film acting breakthrough year came in 1996, with roles in Far Away Home, playing the part of David Alden, and as Ralph Ferguson in the legal drama Sleepers, directed by future Oz producer Barry Levinson. In 1997, Kinney appeared as Billy Watson in the John Frankenheimer-directed TV movie George Wallace, before landing the role of Tim McManus on Oz. So later in the day, McManus is passing through M-City, where he sees Diane, and he quickly tries to get past her, but she accosts him and asks him about wanting to go for dinner with her and her daughter. This time she says it'll be her treat, so a change of tactics from Diane this time after she tried to score a free dinner last time. McManus accepts the offer, but doesn't seem too enthusiastic, unlike Diane, who actually seems pretty happy that he said yes, we actually get some actual emotion out of her for the first time in a while. In the staff room, Officer Heim, who we last saw when Alva Case was conducting his investigation, is having a fight with a vending machine that has stolen his money. McManus comes in and tells him that he can't make poker that night because he's having dinner with Diane and her daughter. This seems to be the first indication that McManus has any sort of actual friend outside of Oz. Heim tells him that McManus and Diane are always on again off again, but McManus assures him that they're definitely off. Despite that, McManus says that Diane was very helpful when he was in the hospital, so Heim asks him what happened between them. McManus tells him to forget about it, but Heim asks McManus how long they've known each other, and whether or not he trusts him. McManus has a quick check over his shoulder and tells Heim that he's been over the commission report a hundred times, which I find hard to believe and that he isn't convinced that Scott Ross died how it claims, and that it was Diane that killed him. But all that he has is Schillinger's word. Heim tells him fuck Schillinger, but Mamana says that he knows that Diane was lying when he asked her about it. Heim asks how he knows, Mamana saying when you sleep with someone, you can tell. Mamanis leaves, which allows Heim to put in the calls at the control desk, and he asks to speak to Diane. Mamanus heads to the staff changing room to meet up with Diane. Both of them are wearing brown jackets, and he even gives her a quick look up and down, almost like he's going to say, well, one of us is going to have to change. But perhaps it's more indicative that things are murky between them. Diane lays her cards out on the table saying that she knows that McManus has his doubts about the shooting, and the two of them argue and Diane raises interesting points about moral codes as we close out Act 2. Tim, I
1: gotta be blunt. I know you have doubts about what really happened to Scott Ross. Do you remember the look in his eyes when he fired that gun at you? Yeah. Do you remember anything of what happened next?
4: I've tried to. I can't.
1: Yeah, I don't remember much myself. It all happened so fast. I do know that I did what I did because he shot you. He wanted you dead.
4: And that justifies it? Yes. If I agree with you, it goes against everything I believe in, every principle I stand for.
1: I'm not asking you to compromise yourself. I'm just saying we don't all live in the same world as you. For most of us, what has to be done matters more than what should be done. Here's your mommy. Hey, sweetie. This is Dee Dee. Do you still want to get dinner? No.
3: So back by popular demand, it's time once again to play Homicide or Nomicide. And shout out to John Lister, who asked if Nomicide was the crime that Donald Groves was convicted of. Tip of the hat to you, sir. As we have had our first proper interaction with Shirley Bellinger this episode, and having also done a proper introduction for Terry Kinney in the role of Tim McManus, the question to you, the audience, did Catherine Irby and Terry Kinney appear in episodes of Homicide Life on the Street before appearing on Oz? It's a simple yes or no, and I will let you know at the end of the show. Act 3 gets underway with Augustus playing a card game while he waits for his washing to finish, and it's here where we get some shocking direction and editing going on, as we can see George and Tom just hanging around in the background outside the washroom waiting for their queue. How that got past the edit, and why they didn't have them do a longer approach, I'll never know. So to the surprise of nobody now, Rebado and Mallers enter the washroom to do their laundry. As Boosmalis grabs some clothes out of his bag, a load of dirt drops to the ground, and the look on his face is priceless. He looks across to Rebido with a hopeful, what do I do? And Rebido tells him to just get rid of it, and he tries to push it under the washing machine with his foot. Augustus, with a great line of, now that's what I call dirty, and then asks them to confess what they're up to. Boosmalis asks if Augustus can keep a secret, and Rebido vouches for him, but Augustus asks whether or not he wants to, and they then haggle for what it will take for Augustus to keep his mouth shut and they settle on them doing Augustus washing for two and a half weeks. Ribodeau tells Augustus about how they're digging their way out of Oz, and Boos Malis jumps in with, IT'S AN ESCAPE TUNNEL! He's so excited to be telling someone, and Ribodeau has to shush him and tell him to shut up. Augustus mentions about how they mentioned that plan when they got back to M-City, but he thought they were just bullshitting. Boost Malice explains that the washing the dirt away with the clothes was Ribodeau's idea, and that's a play on the trope that we've seen in movies like The Great Escape, which I've mentioned previously, and you see it in the Shawshank Redemption 2. And again, spoiler alert here for a film that's 25 years old, and another one that's even older. In those movies, they get rid of the tunnel dirt by dropping it out of their trousers when they go outside. With Oz seemingly not allowing anyone outside at any point during the day, Rebido and Boos Miles have had to be a little bit more creative. It's actually really fucking smart on their part. Well done, guys. Rebido asks Augustus if he wants to go with them, and Augustus jokes with them about the tunnel having handicapped access. It was nice of Rebido to offer, but he really didn't think that through. Augustus tells him that their secret is safe with him, and tells him to fold his clothes when they take him out with the dryer. Great little scene, this one, and it's nice to see that the others are still getting along. We get a flashback to what we saw of Adebisi dancing in his pants, and Shibeta watching him as we come back into a scene in Leo's office. He's asking about rumours that he has heard about Shibeta wanting to murder Adebisi. Rather than deny it, Shibeta says that Leo shouldn't listen to rumours. I hope he's not talking about the Fleetwood Mac album there, that's a bloody good album. Leo isn't taking any shit though and tells Shibeta not to play games with him, and that if anything happens to Adebizie, then Leo is coming after him. Shabetta asks who's playing games and says that Leo still owes him large. Leo questions if Shibeta thinks he can hold that over him forever. We're still not totally clear on what exactly that is, as Shibeta tells him, forever, or for however long we're in this zoo together. He picks up a photo from Leo's bookshelf and tells him that he likes that Leo is a family man. Leo likes his job, but loves his family. Leo grabs the picture from Shibeta's hand before Shibeta says that it looks like they have nothing to talk about before he leaves the office, as Leo chucks the picture down on the desk. We get a quick scene of Leo in the gym hitting away on the heavy bag again. That seems to be his go-to to get some anger out. And he's doing it bare too. That's fucking hardcore. And we see the man from the photo in the last scene signing into Oz, as Augustus narrates about brothers, and how older brothers get to break in the fucks and fuck them up first. So this man is Leo's older brother, Mark, played by Cortez Nance Jr. I couldn't find a whole lot about him in my research, but from what I could find, he studied at the HB studio before making his acting debut in 1982, appearing in the movie Sophie's Choice, and he made his theatre acting debut in an off-Broadway production of The Forbidden City in 1989. Other film credits include The Saint of Fort Washington and Dead Man Walking, as well as an appearance in the 1996 off-Broadway production of Rhinoceros. Leo tells Mark to sit and they need to talk, and we get a flashback, and just before I play this, there is a racial slur in this clip, so you've been warned.
0: What's going on, little
2: brother? Hey, Mark. Come. Um, sit down. Uh-oh. What? You got your deep bad tone going. That means some kind of shit has hit some sort of fan. Hit you better. I can't keep protecting you. what do you say? Nothing new. Either he gets what he wants, or you go to jail. Fucking Guinea
0: motherfucker.
2: He's not to blame, you are. Here we go, the election. This is not- I told you, man, I didn't mean to kill nobody. Oh. I was just trying to make some fucking money for rent. Oh. <laughs> what are you doing? Please, no! <laughs> just said shoot, so I shoot. Look, you fired the gun, period. Now, she bet his boys are holding on to it for leverage. You got to turn yourself in. What? You fucking kidding me? Look, you have to, Mark. You killed a man. You going to let your own brother burn so you can run your prison? Are you going to make your brother pay for your crime? Now, I am living a lie. I could get the death penalty. I keep protecting you. Who knows how far she better could take this? How many more people will die? I'm oh, sorry, Leo. He says, shoot. Please, don't do this to me. You did it to yourself, Mark. Now you have to turn yourself in. I'll go with you if you want. But you got to turn yourself in.
3: So we finally get to see what it was that Shabetta has been holding over Leo this whole time, that being that Leo's brother Mark was involved in a murder while working as a mafia enforcer, and they've obviously been using this as leverage for certain perks whilst inside, such as getting the kitchen back. Cut to the kitchen with Shabetta and Chucky, and Chucky is wearing a tracksuit which is doing nothing but help him being a walking Italian-American stereotype. Adebisi says that he has sprayed rat poison everywhere, thankfully having stopped impaling them, and Shibeta tells him that he should have used the traps, because the rats are now going to die in the walls. Chucky says that they'll be smelling the stench for a week, which sets up Shibeta to have another pop at Adebisi's hygiene issue, saying that no one will notice. Adebisi tells Shibeta, who he is still referring to as Little Nino, that when he says things like that, it hurts, and he just wants to be friends. Shibeta asks him if that's the case, why doesn't he go and get him a chocolate bar? Adabezi heads to the pantry, and he's soon joined by Miguel, who seems to just walk into the kitchen, no questions asked. He says that he's been thinking about Adebisi's offer, Adebisi asking him, so will you do it? Miguel tells him no, but that doesn't mean that they still can't do business. And he tells Adebisi that he's heard about Shibeta having something on Leo. Although he doesn't know exactly what it is, he's sure that Leo wouldn't mind if Shibeta were to take a hit. Adabezi is reluctant, saying that if he kills Shibeta, they will still have to investigate but Miguel tells him that he just needs to slow Shibeta down and let Leo sweep the dirt under the rug. Adabezi tells him that he and Miguel can tango after all, lucky as Miguel has been taking dance lessons just in case, and they then pour some of the rat poison onto a bar of chocolate that Adebisi has carefully unwrapped. Cut to Leo enter in the hospital, and Gloria tells him that Shibeta was brought in vomiting and pissing blood. No prizes for guessing why, and ordinarily I tell you why you shouldn't consume rat poison, but you're all smart adults, don't do that. Leo heads in to see Shibeta, who seems to be in the smallest single bed in the world, and he's saying that he wants Leo to bring Adebisi to him. But Leo tells him no, and that if Adebisi did this, then Leo will be the one to punish him. Shibeta tries to make more demands and calls him Leo again, but is quickly cut off and Leo tells him not to call him that. Shibeta asks if that's a threat or a joke, and Leo gets right in his face, telling him that Mark is turning himself in, and that as a result, he and Shibeta are done and he finishes it off with Capisce, Italian for understand. Back in the kitchen, and Leo tells the rest of the Italians that with Shabetta gone, they're out of the kitchen. Chucky says that with or without Shabetta, they run the kitchen, but Leo is having none of it, and he tells them they've been reassigned to the dress factory. Chucky protests, but guards lead the group out of the kitchen, and Chucky says to Adebisi that he'll see him real soon, but Adebisi tells him to go and make him a dress. Leo approaches Adabezi, who is saying that, I told you, with a little poison, all the rats are gone. Leo warns him that if he can prove that Adebisi hurts you better, then he'll be gone too, but Adebisi doesn't seem too concerned. Augustus gives us some more brother talk, as we see Leo supporting Mark as he is booked in and has his mugshot taken to close out Act
2: 3. See? you the poison, and no, all the rats. If I can prove you hurt you better... You're gone, too.
0: The Jackson Five, the Kennedy brothers, the Marx brothers. When brothers work together, amazing shit happens. When they don't, life sucks.
3: Act 4 then, and we see a flashback of Keller smacking Mac in the face with his cast and the fight by the phones from the last episode. In the hospital, Mac is having a check on his nose when Keller is brought in by Miguel. Keller says that his arm is healed, so he's getting his cast off, but Mac asks him why he should care. Keller says sorry about breaking Mac's nose, but he had to make the fight look real, or else Beecher would have guessed they were in cahoots. Mac says that Schillinger might want them to work together, but that once Beecher is dead, he and Keller are going to settle the score. Keller telling him anytime, any place. Gloria comes over with a sword to cut off Keller's cast, and he lets out a jerky scream when she turns it on. So, as was alluded to previously, Keller is not what he seems, and he appears to have been brought in by Schillinger to take out Beecher for him, or at the very least mess with Beecher's mind before Schillinger does the deed himself. We don't know the full extent of their background together yet, but Keller coming to Oz with a minimum 50-year sentence just to be part of Schillinger's plan would suggest that Schillinger has some element of control over Keller, and that Keller was willing to do whatever for him. In the gym, Keller and Beecher are partaking in some amateur wrestling. Keller asks him if he's ever wrestled before. Beecher saying once in high school, but he decided it wasn't for him after he saw Arthur Weiner, which is a belter of a name, get his leg broken in a match. Keller says that he'll make sure nothing of Beecher's snaps and tells him to square up. That pair of lines from Beecher and Keller are fantastic foreshadowing when re-watching this, all of which will become clear in a couple of episodes' time. They don't mean much on the first go-round, but when you know where the story goes, it's great seed that's planted. Keller gives Beecher a quick explanation of the rules before they have their first grapple, and Keller quickly takes Beecher down. They square up again, and Keller once again takes Beecher down, as we get a shot of Schillinger looking on from behind a pillar in the gym, watching all of this unfold. Beecher gets the upper hand at one point, and Keller tells him that he's doing good, but Beecher reckons that Keller is letting him win. Keller says that he isn't, before reversing the hold, so maybe he was after all. The style of wrestling here seems to be freestyle wrestling, sometimes referred to as Olympic wrestling, as there are a couple of points where you see both men grab the other's leg. Greco-Roman wrestling, the other style practiced in US schools, forbids hold below the waist as part of its rules. Both styles are taught in most US high schools and colleges with slight rule modifications, and both styles are contested at the Olympic Games, Greco-Roman having been done so since the first Olympics in Athens in 1896, while freestyle has been contested since the 1904 Games in St Louis. Following the 2012 Olympics in London, it was recommended that both wrestling sports be dropped from the Games, however the decision was reversed, and both were contested at the Olympics in Rio de Janeiro in 2016, and will be part of the 2020 Games in Tokyo. We see Schillinger leave with a smile on his face, loving that his plan is coming together, as Beecher is becoming more and more competitive and determined to beat Keller. They both remove their sweatshirts and continue to wrestle, before then removing T-shirts and vests. Beecher finally manages to get the better of Keller and holds him down on the ground and they stare into each other's eyes, but Beecher seems to snap out of it, almost like he is having feelings and emotions that he perhaps feels that he shouldn't be. This scene is reminiscent of the legendary nude wrestling scene between Alan Bates and Oliver Reed in 1965's Women in Love, although it does stop short of Beecher and Keller getting completely starkers. So this wrestling scene here is the start of what will become another of the show's centrepiece arcs, and reaffirms that Beecher is, in a way, the main protagonist of the show. While this arc does take on a life of its own, it acts as a way as keeping the rivalry between Schillinger and Beecher alive due to them being housed in different parts of the prison. While we know about Keller and Schillinger working together, Beecher is blissfully unaware at this point, and no doubt thinks that with Schillinger out of M-City, then those days are somewhat behind him and there are times when it's hard to watch because we know what's going on and you just want to shout, No, Beecher! Don't trust him! We cut to later in the day and the pair are in their pod and Beecher is trying to teach Keller how to play chess. Keller is complaining, saying that chess is a stupid-ass game and there are too many rules, Beecher telling him to give it a chance and that wrestling has just as many. It's a good way of showing the different sides of both men's character by using two equally tactical games. And while wrestling may be that bit more physical and macho, you would think that Chess would be right up Keller's street, being a game of manipulation. Or is he just that manipulative that he can make it look like he doesn't care or understand the game? Some serious layering going on in these two scenes. McManus enters the pod and tells Beecher that he needs to talk to him. Keller asks what Beecher has done wrong, but Beecher says that if you do something wrong, you're summoned to McManus' office, but he comes to you to deliver bad news. McManus gives Beecher the chance to receive the news in private, but he seems fine with Keller hearing it, and McManus tells Beecher that his wife has died. We get a quick flashback to when Genevieve visited way back in episode 2, and Beecher asks how she died, McManus saying that she committed suicide in their garage by leaving the car running, causing death by asphyxiation. Beecher asks about his children and demands to see them. McManus says they're fine and with family, and that he has already arranged for a visit the following day. He tells Beecher that he is sorry, and asks if there is anything that he can do, but Beecher brushes him off before asking if Genevieve left a note. Mamana says that he doesn't know, but Beecher is sure that she will have done. Mamana says he'll try to find out as he leaves, and Keller asks if Beecher wants to play any more chess, go wrestle, or just leave him alone, seemingly as a way of taking Beecher's mind off of things. Beecher puts his head in his hands as Keller tells him that he is sorry, and that if Beecher wants to cry, to go ahead and do so, as Beecher throws the chessboard across the pod. A guard, who looks like UFC ring announcer Bruce Buffer, comes over to check on the commotion, but Keller says everything is fine, and the guard leaves. Schillinger is back in M-City to deliver the mail, and he hands out a couple of pieces before he takes a particular letter out of his top pocket. He takes it over to Beecher and seems very impressed by the stationery from Cartier as he places it down on the table. He then chimes in with, Oh by the way, I heard your wife offed herself, and then scampers away laughing like Cesar Romero's Joker. Keller sits there stone-faced, not reacting to Schillinger's joy, almost like even he, the wolf in sheep's clothing, thinks that Schillinger's reaction is a bit too much. Or perhaps he's saying, come on, Vern, stick to the plan. He has to play things careful when Beecher is around. Beecher then takes the letter out of the envelope and reads it.
0: What's the matter? Sweet Jesus.
4: It's from Genevieve. She says that I did it, but I killed her just like that little girl."
3: So obviously we know that Schillinger has access to all the mail that comes into Oz, whether it's just letters or larger packages, but there are a couple of questions that hang over whether or not Genevieve's death was another part of his plan. McManus did mention about how she killed herself using the car, but we've already seen that the Aryans are capable of staging an elaborate death. Could members of the group on the outside have gotten to Genevieve and killed her only to then make it look like suicide? Schillinger would have had access to Beecher's home address, as presumably Beecher would have sent something through the mail during his time in Oz. Or could Genevieve's suicide just be an unfortunate coincidence that Schillinger has found out about and realised that he can use that to his advantage? The way that he produces the letter from his pocket and how he acts when delivering it He's clearly had time to consider how he's going to do that, perhaps after he's found out the news when checking the mail. We'll never know for sure, but that giddy laugh he does once he hands over the letter suggests to me that this is all a bit of bonus misery for Beecher that he hadn't planned beforehand. Beecher attends the visit with his kids, and they've been brought in by their grandmother, Cordelia, played by Elizabeth Lawrence. Before Beecher goes in to visit with his kids, she tells him that it was them that found their mother, and they're still in shock and asks him to go slowly, as the children haven't seen him in more than a year. Beecher asks, is it because she doesn't want him to see them, which she says isn't the case, but perhaps that maybe they shouldn't have come so early, as we get a flashback of the kids opening up their garage door as smoke billows out. Beecher says that he understands and tells her to take them home, as he takes a long look at the children through the window of the playroom. Cut to night time, and Keller awakens to see Beecher over by the sink crying. He asks, what's the matter? Beecher saying that he's fucked up his entire life and that he is all alone. Keller comes over and puts his hands on Beecher's shoulders, telling him that he isn't alone, and then lowers his hand and grabs Beecher's penis. Beecher angrily pushes Keller away and tells him not to touch him, as he then cowers in the corner and continues crying, as Augustus narrates while playing the part of a husband and wife.
0: Husbands and wives, men, <laughs> We come into this world looking for unconditional love from our parents, and when we don't get it, we find someone, anyone, and we marry them. And we spend the rest of our lives together beating the shit out of each other, trying to prove that we didn't deserve unconditional love in the first place. In a marriage, you pay for crimes you never committed. Biatch. What
3: the Sister Pete is in her office looking at the various words that Giles has been saying to her when Ray comes in saying that his car hissed at him, there is steam coming out of the engine, and he asks for a lift to the rectory. He knocks on the wall as Peter's missed all of his moaning about his car, and she then asks him to take a look at the words too. She says that she's been trying everything she can to try and get jars to open up, but hasn't had any luck. She hopes that she might see a connection if she wrote them out, and they have a couple of goes at connecting the words. After a few seconds, Rick connects the words sick and amore, in, and tries different pronunciation to make the word amore, and links the two to make sycamore. Pete then alters the words on the blackboard, adding an E to the end of Broom, as the penny finally drops and they're left with Sycamore Street and Broom Street. Ray asks what happened on Sycamore and Broom, as Pete reveals that is the corner where her husband was killed as she holds back tears. So I've been mentioning this side story as we go on the podcast, but this has annoyed me a little bit when re-watching. Sister Pete is a smart woman, and with losing her husband in such a tragic way, The fact that she didn't make this connection sooner made no sense at all. While the words themselves held no meaning on their own and with how they're spelt, it wasn't exactly the Enigma code. Ray managing to make a connection between the words in a few seconds, while Pete has tried everything she can think of, as she says, made her look such an idiot. Pete goes to visit Giles, but a guard is arguing with her, saying that Leo has instructed not to allow Sister Pete access unless Giles is being restrained. Pete says she hasn't got time for that and demands a visit with Giles, and she does a good job standing up to this guard. We never find out his name, but he is played by Brett Bailey, and this is the last of the very few acting roles that he had. He eventually allows Pete into Giles' cell, and she asks Giles outright if he murdered her husband, and asks if all of this has been confession by Morse code. Giles tells her no before he starts to say her name over and over, but she isn't standing for that anymore. She mentions about sycamore and broom and how somebody pushed her husband off the back of a truck and asks Giles again if he was the man that did it, which he denies. He says the word eyes, which Pete takes to mean that Giles saw what happened. He then says pop, crackle and snap, and makes a snapping motion with his hands. While I was hoping that the truck in this story was delivering Rice Krispies, Pete says that her husband's neck was broken in the accident and asks Giles what happened before that. Giles hides himself under a blanket, but Pete pulls it away and asks him again, but all she is getting this time is the word AIM, and at this point Giles becomes more aggressive and the guard pulls Pete out of the cell as Giles continues to shout the word at her. Augustus narrates about families asking favours as we see Miguel visit Ryan in his pod, who is sat writing at a notepad. Ryan asks, did you get it? as Miguel shows him a brown bag that he's been hiding in his trousers. Ryan gives him some cash for whatever is in the bag, and Miguel says that he understands paying that amount for drugs, but why for what he just gave Ryan, which we see as a stethoscope, or more precisely, Gloria's stethoscope. Miguel asks what sort of scam is Ryan running, but Ryan tells him that he isn't running one, and he wanted it because it was hers. Miguel says that if he didn't know better, he'd say Ryan was in love. Ryan asks if that's so hard to believe, but Miguel doesn't think that anybody in Oz could be in love. We see Gloria sat at her desk taking a phone call. It's Ryan on the other end of the line. He asks why she wasn't at his latest chemotherapy session, but she tells him that she doesn't need to be there as the nurse is qualified. Ryan tells her that the chemo is making him sick and that he needs a checkup. Gloria says she'll arrange for Dr. Prostopnik to see Ryan later that afternoon, but Ryan wants Gloria to take care of him. She brushes him off saying that she's too busy and tries to hang up, and tells Ryan that he needs to stop calling her all the time, so this isn't the first time this has happened. Ryan manages to get her to wait for a moment as he tells her that he loves her, and the grimace on his face when he does it is like a kid who's just told his girlfriend for the first time and he's scared of what's going to be said next. Gloria hangs up the phone after a few seconds and Sister Pete, who's been sat next to Gloria taking notes on some paperwork, asks what all that was about. Gloria tells her that it was Ryan and that he calls her ten times a day, and even pulls some love letters from out of a drawer, so presumably he was writing the latest one when Miguel came to see him earlier. Pete asks whether or not Gloria has been encouraging Ryan, as she mentioned previously that she was attracted to him. Gloria acknowledges that she did say that, but says that she hasn't done or said anything, and that she was just being a good doctor. Pete asks whether or not Gloria wants her to have a chat with Ryan, and Gloria says to go ahead if she thinks it will help. We cut to Sister Pete's office, where Ryan has been brought in for their chat. Hey Ryan, come on in, sit down.
1: So
2: uh, how are you feeling? Some days are better than others.
1: Well, I'm not surprised. But you've been through these last few weeks. Breast cancer, surgery, chemo. These things are difficult to adjust to. I manage. What I mean is uh, your life was in danger just a short time ago. And now your your chances for recovery are excellent so that all the fear that you experienced has to be replaced by something else. You know, other emotions, like your feelings for Dr. Nathan. You seem to have been focusing a lot on her lately. She saved my fucking life. Sure, of course, but it's very easy to mistake appreciation for affection.
2: You're saying what I'm feeling isn't real.
1: Oh, no, no, no. I'm sure it is for you. But but for Dr. Nathan, it's, um, well, she has a different perspective. And uh, if you care for her, Ryan, you have to respect that. You should stop writing, stop calling.
3: Ryan says that sometimes he just needs to hear Gloria's voice, but Pete tells him that Gloria doesn't want to hear his, which is brutal, but Pete seems to be very much a part of the cruel-to-be-kind school of thought. She tells him that true love is reciprocal, and that when it isn't, it's no longer love, but an obsession. Ryan tells Pete that she is wrong, and that what he feels for Gloria is the truest and best thing that he's ever had in his life, and that they are not going to be able to take it away from him. Pete tries to tell him that isn't what she was doing, but he interrupts her asking whether she thinks Gloria is too good for him, and says once again that he loves Gloria, and that she can send him to a thousand shrinks or drop him in the hole for a million years, but nothing will come close to how he feels for her. Ryan raises from his seat as he shouts at Pete, but McManus knocks on the door to calm things down. He seems to have a habit of being nearby whenever a fight or a shouting match is about to break out. I suppose he could have just been coming along to the meeting anyway, as he is responsible for Ryan. Ryan opens the door saying that McManus dated Gloria, and McManus reminds Ryan that Gloria, and Ryan himself, are married. Ryan starts shouting whether or not McManus and Gloria slept together, as he is led away by a guard. McManus tells him that this has to stop, but Ryan says that he can't. McManus closes the door as Pete has a look on her face as if to say, "'Oh, that went as well as could be expected, didn't it?' We cut to Ryan meeting up again with his brother Cyril, so this is the first time that we have seen them together since Ryan went in for his surgery." He tells Cyril that he has to do this for him, but Cyril knows that what he's being asked to do is a bad thing, and he says that Ryan told him not to be bad anymore. Ryan asks him to do this one time, just for him, and Cyril agrees, and they say that they love each other. So much like we've experienced with Shirley Bellinger, we're being drip-fed bits of information about Ryan and Cyril's backstory, like here when Cyril mentions about Ryan telling him not to be bad anymore. We're not told how or what exactly Cyril has done that was considered bad, but there is some sort of history there. Cut to Leo's office, where he and McManus are waiting for Gloria. She enters the room and Leo tells her to take a seat, and he explains that he's received news from the state police that they found a body, and they believe it to be Gloria's husband, Leo saying that he has been murdered. There's a very faint scream played as he says that, which I'm sure is from the end of Korn's Freak on a Leash video. Listen out for it in the clip in a moment. Gloria says... Oh My God, repeatedly, and begins to cry as McManus comforts her. The episode closes with Augustus' narration about childhood memories, featuring an appearance by a child version of himself, and the final shot sees Ryan in bed listening to his heartbeat through Gloria's stethoscope.
2: We just got word from the state police. They found the body. They think it's your husband's.
1: My husband.
0: He was murdered.
1: Oh, my God. 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 God.
0: Every once in a while, I remember something I did when I was a child. Or something that was done to me. By my father or my brother or a cousin. Some injury, some humiliation. And it seems like it happened to another person a century or two ago. I'm not really sure if what I remember really took place at all. You can't build your life relying on the perception of a little boy when the echoes are some memory. Nah, you got to let all that shit go. You got to start fresh. Every single day, you have got to
3: start again. So that was Series 2, Episode 5, Family Business. A real mixed bag of an episode, this one. I thought it started very well, and the scene of the graduation and McManus and Poet's speeches were very good. But once that was out of the way, and we got into the second half of the episode, I thought it took a bit of a dive. McManus' on-again, off-again relationship with Diane doesn't interest me. Sister Pete's part of the episode made her look a bit daft and didn't really need to be there. Ryan came across looking like a lovesick puppy in his pursuit of Gloria, and Leo's brother Mark had somewhat of a rush story just to help move along Leo's own story with Shabetta. Having said that, Keller is adding some new life to the Beecher-Schillinger arc, and the momentum seems to be shifting back in Schillinger's favour. We got one death this episode, that being Beecher's wife Genevieve, who was played by Susan Floyd. Susan went on to have a number of small TV roles, including appearances in Spin City, Boston Legal, Without a Trace, and play a number of different roles within the Law & Order franchise of shows, as well as appearing in the 1999 film Random Hearts. In 2006, Susan was set to appear in ten episodes of Runaway for the newly launched CW network. However, due to low viewing figures, the show was pulled from the network after only three episodes, and cancelled soon afterwards. In 2007, Susan appeared in The Invasion, the loose remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers starring Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman, and her most recent credit was playing the part of Maria in the short film The Haymaker. In 2010, she married her husband, Brian Edward Doolittle, with whom she has two children. We only saw Genevieve in one episode of Series 1, which makes her another of the Oz One & Done Club. Joining her in the club is Elizabeth Lawrence, who played the part of Beecher's grandmother, Cordelia. Post-Oz, Elizabeth appeared in As the World Turns and Third Watch on TV, and had a minor role in 2000's M. Night Shyamalan movie Unbreakable. Elizabeth Lawrence passed away on June 11th 2000, aged 77. The final inductee into the One and Done Club from this episode is Cortez Nance Jr., appearing here as Mark Glynn. Following this appearance on Oz, Cortez, much like Susan Floyd, also appeared in episodes of Law and Order, as well as appearances in Rescue Me, Person of Interest, Blue Bloods, Shades of Blue, and Madam Secretary. Cortez also treaded the boards in a number of theatre productions, including Moot the Messenger, which played at the Actors Theatre of Louisville in Kentucky, Delicious Rivers and One Night, which both played in New York City, and in 2016 he played the part of Jim Bono in a production of Fences at the Triad Mainstage in Greensboro, North Carolina. Also leaving the show is Officer Rick Heim, played by Paul Schultz. Paul maintained a steady acting career with appearances on TV in shows such as NYPD Blue, Grounded for Life, and becomes another member of the cast to have appeared in Frasier, appearing in the show's 10th season. From 1999 to 2006, Paul appeared in 13 episodes of HBO's The Sopranos, playing the part of Father Phil in Cintola, appearing as a love interest for Carmela Soprano, played by Oz co-star Edie Falco. In 2002-2004, Paul appeared in Fox's 24, playing the part of Ryan Chappell, before reuniting with Edie Falco again in 80 episodes of Showtime's Nurse Jackie, playing the part of Eddie Walzer. His most recent credit was for playing the part of Rollins in 8 episodes of Netflix's The Punisher. As for the episode's guest director, Kathy Bates continues to work both on-screen and on TV. In 2001, Bates directed two episodes of the first season of HBO's Six Feet Under, and would direct a further three episodes between 2002 and 2003 in the show's second and third seasons. In addition to directing the show, Bates also had a recurring role on the show between 2003 and 2005, playing the part of Bettina. In 2002, Bates received critical acclaim for her role as Roberta in the Jack Nicholson-fronted comedy drama About Schmidt, a role for which Bates was nominated for both an Oscar and a Golden Globe Award in the Best Supporting Actress category. In 2003, Bates directed an attempted TV spin-off of the Coen Brothers' 1996 movie Fargo, where she once again directed Edie Falco. Bates also directed the TV movie Ambulance Girl in 2005, which was shown on the Lifetime Network, and 2006's Have Mercy. Further TV work has included appearing in eight episodes of The Office, and two seasons of Harry's Law on NBC, for which she was nominated for an Emmy Award. In addition to her Academy Award, bits, has also won two Emmy Awards, her first in 2012 for Outstanding Guest Actress in a Comedy Series for Two and a Half Men, and her second in 2014 for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Miniseries or Movie for her role in American Horror Story, Coven. Bit's most recent work includes appearances in the twelfth season of The Big Bang Theory on CBS, two seasons of Disjointed on Netflix, an appearance in the Netflix film The Highwaymen, and is set to appear in the movie Home, which is currently in pre-production. My MVP for this episode, this was really tough to pick because after a strong start, it did look like the award was going to go to Mumanis again, but he had such a comedown following the graduation scene that I just felt like it wouldn't be right to give it to him. There wasn't a whole lot else to choose from in this episode, but the moments that did stand out to me were Rebido and Bousmalis providing some much-needed comic relief, trying to get rid of their tunnel dirt, and Poet's speech at the graduation, which I feel was the highlight of this episode. So for that reason, Arnold Jackson, aka Poet, is the episode MVB winner. And in the result of Homicide or Nomicide, I can tell you that Catherine Erby and Terry Kinney did both feature in an episode of Homicide Life on the Street before appearing on Oz, although it was at different times. Catherine Erby appeared in the Season 6 episode, All is Bright, while Terry Kinney appeared in the episode, Map of the Heart, from Season 4. Time to have a dive into the mailbag, which I haven't done for some time, and this comes from Jamie from Pennsylvania. And he asks, who are you planning to vote for in the US presidential election in 2020? Furthermore, what is your opinion of President Trump, and who do you think can beat him? Well, Jeremy, slight issue with that, and as I thought I'd made this obvious on the podcast, I'm unable to vote for the US President, as I do not live in the US, nor do I hold any sort of American citizenship, so my vote would be meaningless. As for who can beat him, and I assume by you asking me that, that means you're not a Trump supporter... I honestly don't know who the Democrats are going to put up against him. 2016, the year that politics went truly mad, you had a career politician in Hillary Clinton going against him, and yet he still, by some miracle, won the election. That's not me endorsing Hillary, not by a long shot, but surely she was the lesser of two evils on the night. His entire term so far has been an absolute shitshow that you would hope that the voting population will have been swayed enough come November 2020, but I do think it's going to be a much tighter contest than people think. As for who the Democrats will put forward, we've already seen a number of people throw their hat into the ring, and of those I don't think Bernie Sanders will get the nomination, I think Beto O'Rourke says the right things but will ultimately lose out. Joe Biden will have just a bunch of Obama stuff thrown at him from the Republicans, but I will say that it's great to see so many women look to gain the nomination. Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Marianne Williamson, all women who have the ability to make Trump squirm, and you just know he'll put himself in a position to say something monumentally sexist when confronted by them. Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, would make for an interesting few months if he got the nomination, an outside shout could be Eric Swalwell, but I think it will be Joe Biden that gets the nomination in the end. As for my opinion of President Trump, well, he's a <laughs> who has a strange obsession with <laughs> a kid locker <laughs> that's able to <laughs> from anything that will <laughs> all the while being somewhat of a <laughs> who should never have got his name on the ballot in the first place. So while I climb down from my political soapbox, let me remind you that if you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can head on over to iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castro Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, or wherever you get your podcasts from. The entire Series 1 is available on those platforms as well as what we've covered in Series 2 so far and you'll also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes. Help the show out by giving it a five-star review wherever you can. It helps the show gain exposure and appear on the charts to help the show grow and if you want to get in touch with the show with any Oz-related or non-related comments or questions, you can do so by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com and you can follow the show on social media on both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at insideozpodcast. Next time on Inside Oz, we will be looking at Series 2, Episode 6, Strange Bedfellows, where Schillinger continues to court Saeed's legal help, Adabizi and Shibeta have a brutal confrontation, and there is a shake up in the Latino gang following a new arrival. All of this and more on Inside Oz, the world's only Oz review podcast. Catch you later, everyone! Don't,
0: don't. You're looking for the same thing. It's a new thing. Check out this. The brain. I'll All the role below the level because I'm living low next to the base. Come on. Turn up the radio. They're claiming I'm a criminal. Yeah. But now I wonder how. Some people never know. The enemy could be the Frank Guardian.